Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here to help my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, who isn't dead. Michael, how have you been? Well, I have been better, Gary. And in the context of how I was less than I was, I am now better than then. But I am not still, shall we say, operating at optimum levels. We shall see what uh, the mechanics can do, but I'm sure it'll all be fine in the end. Well, everything is fine in the end, isn't it? Well, spring is coming, Gary, so let's be positive and upbeat. I think your spring is gone, Michael. (laughs) It may well be. You're you're solidly in the winter phase. So just on a little bit of housekeeping, we're obviously away for a while. We are hoping now to come back. We're going to do this just as a test show, just to see if everything... Still works, still clicks along. If you hear this, then presumably it has. Uh, We will start releasing more episodes. I'm not sure if we will go back into the same release schedule we had uh, before Christmas. We will see how things go. It might be a bit of a lighter schedule. But we will see and we will do as uh, much as we can. And please, God, stop emailing me asking me when the podcast is back. (laughs) Just stop. It was very endearing, but Jesus Christ. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to know that there are people out there who noticed the absence and even cared. Initially, it was just, I hope Michael doesn't die. And I was like, you know, that's great. Yeah. But then over time, it became, I hope Michael doesn't die. And where is the podcast? (laughs) And then it became, regardless if Michael lives or dies, where is the podcast? Where's the pretzel money? Every day. What about the pretzel money? Where's the pretzel money? Yeah, so I started getting emails that were like, I mean, just because he dies doesn't mean you should stop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the world... The word keeps turning, let's face it. But I, I liked the gradual transition over about the space of three weeks. <laughs> I wonder if there's something deep-seated in, the, in sort of the human psyche. So, like, three weeks to a month is the, is basically as long as we can care about anything. Yeah, the tragedy is over. Yeah. Now it's just, when do I get this? <laughs> Anyway, very good. It was legitimately quite endearing. And I, I was actually, its uh, it has been the greatest display of uh, listener feedback we've ever received on the podcast. I mean, I ask and I ask people to tell us what they like and don't like about the show, and you get nothing. But suddenly, it's just like, no, you can't stop. You don't get to stop. Well, I suppose you now know the answer. The thing they like about the show is the show being on. <laughs> <laughs> You're here forever. Yeah. So we will talk about minimum unit pricing on alcohol <laughs> um, at some point. God. The point at which I knew Michael was actually on the up and up was when I rang him and I didn't ask about the podcast because I wanted to let him recuperate and then there was just I would say a a high-powered rant about alcohol prices well it wasn't I don't think actually we we don't have to talk about it now but it wasn't so much about alcohol prices but the response of I would say the wider media and many many politicians to the uh, the implementation of the bill shall we say politicians looking at people sharing uh, photos of a slab of cans costing 45 euro and just this sort of stunned numbers (laughs) go up what the price goes up if only someone had been saying for years that this was going to happen we appear to be talking about it now Gary are we going to talk about it later no no we, we, we'll move on to the most troublesome one first in order that we if we're going to hang ourselves we get it done efficiently so this is is obviously in, in relation to the Ashling Murphy murder piece in the times and it's it says women surge to self-defense classes as clubs offer free lessons now, I'm 
generally of the opinion that most self-defense classes are a wonderful way to get yourself killed. But what I thought was interesting was the comment at the very end of it, Michael, from Orla O'Connor, director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, so you know it's going to be good. She said there was no behavioral changes that women could make that would make them feel safer. It is men and our culture that needs to change, she said. So that's bullshit at some sort of fractal level, so I thought we might touch upon it in a tasteful and non-provocative fashion. Yeah... I feel like one of those men at war who've been just given a map and of the ter- the train in front of them, and all they can see are fields with the the, sim- the mine symbol just dotted everywhere. I feel like you've just handed me one of those maps, Gary, and said, "Have a have a walk, Michael. Have a trawl. Just don't step on the mine." Well, I think in that spirit, Michael, you should go first. Well, the first thing I'm ask- I would I-, I want to do is to return service and ask you because I'm I'm genuinely curious. You know more about an awful lot more about this kind of stuff than I do because I know nothing. Why do you say that self defense classes are a way to get your so one of the um, one of the most ignored parts of, of human life at the minute is the incredible difference in strength levels between men and women. Yes. Because we live in a society that doesn't really require you to display signs of strength or engage in nature around you in a way where you would demonstrate strength and endurance, it's become very easy to sort of say, you know, men and women are pretty much the same on this. They're not. When you look at the actual statistical distribution of, of, um, of strength and endurance and the bell curve of each men are so much stronger than women it's it's actually quite incredible the the extent of the difference and so there are different types of self-defense courses there are self-defense courses that tend to be more about situational awareness and there are self-defense courses that are things like here's how to stop an attacker with striking right and the problem there is if you are a much weaker person than your assailant and you attempt to utilize those techniques more than likely you will fail is the real thing that instead of spending your your I mean, should you just try to be try running away i mean if we look at the case this of this i mean horrible tragedy with this young woman I, this was a fit young woman fit strong athletic young woman you think that if anybody was going to get away or be able to resist it that she would have been in a position to do so. So I will I will avoid commenting on that particular case because that is going to, like, that's an active trial. But I would make a couple of points there. One is that um, most people you meet probably have the ability to kill you if they really want to, or at least severely hurt you. Like most people you meet on an average day-to-day basis, they just don't because why would they? Yeah. It's effectively impossible to defend against all risks at all times. It's just not going to happen. But what you can do, and this is this is where Orla O'Connor is particularly wrong when she's talking about behavioural changes, is there are absolutely standard things you can do to make yourself less likely to be a victim of a crime, whether you're a man or a woman. And it is worth pointing out here that the vast majority of homicide victims in Ireland are men. I think about 90% in 2018 during to the CSO were men. Now that varies a bit. Sometimes women can go up as high as you know 30% or so, uh, just because Ireland has a very low number of murders. It, we, we, we fall very much into the category globally of a safe country. Interestingly enough, when you go into the Times, the article linked at the bottom of it is uh, about Sky Ireland have to apologise because they gave a self-defence claim for women and one of the things that that uh, self-defense class said was it started talking about situational awareness and that you shouldn't be I believe the phrase was don't be there and you know the general sort of take account of your surroundings and just 
Don't be in situations you think are going to end badly. And this is the problem, Michael. You can't say things like that, even though they're absolutely true for both men and women. Well, I suppose the, the reason people respond badly to that kind of observation, even though it's patently obviously true, is because we were, to, we're this is coming out of a situation where somebody was in a place where they had perfectly, should have been perfectly safe to be. I mean, okay, like, I understand the point you're making. I, I was attacked once uh, pretty bad coming home at half past three in the morning drunk as several monkeys and going through a park walk taking a shortcut through a park which I knew to be inhabited by types that wouldn't be getting up for early mass the next day it was not a, a sensible thing to do and I ended up getting attacked now I'm not I would I don't blame me for the attack I, the person who attacked me was the person who attacked me I, they, they were responsible for that but an awareness, a proper awareness of the situation I was in, and if I hadn't been drunk as monkeys, would have meant it would have been much, much more sensible and sane and reasonable for me to to avoid that and go around the go around by go around the long way. And that would be true of anybody, irrespective of their gender. And that's true in life. Many, many moons ago, Mar- Mart, who listens to the the podcast, how you Mart, will remember getting. Uh, I remember arriving into the pub where we were meeting up, and he had uh, he was missing teeth, and he had he was battered and bruised and broken and it was off and we were terribly sympathetic and then we asked how it had happened and he said ah well he didn't want to get the bus back for after some gig very late one night in town and it had gone through a particular area and suddenly our sympathy for him completely dissipated but the reaction was ah for fuck's sake if you're going to go there at half past two at night what do you expect is going to happen so there is a sense that there are certain things that we should obviously avoid in certain places and certain behaviors we should avoid so it's it seems to be just silly to say that there are no behaviors that we can change in ourselves to make us make us safe and that's irrespective of gender the actual thing to concern yourself about with is is risk mitigation rather than risk elimination you're never going to be able to get rid of all risks And there are going to be circumstances where you will voluntarily take increased risks. You should just be aware that you're taking them. Speaking of um, people being blamed for things they found themselves in, there was one or two Irish guys who found themselves a couple of years ago in an American inner city ghetto and got shot. And I think the general societal reaction was, well, yes, that'll happen. Why were you there? Yeah. Which is not very sympathetic, but that's going to be the reaction. And it's probably the reaction more so for when it happens to men. But... Yeah. What the hell were you at? Why were you there? Or O'Connor's point, no behavioural changes on a societal level just isn't true. The behavioural changes and the things you should actually do are well worn at this point. I'm not sure about in Ireland, but I know in America, in the UK, a lot of police departments will just put them up on their website. And they're all kind of sensible things. And I can understand that people don't want to have to think about these things but there is this sort of when i hear answers like this from nwci people like that there is a little bit of a we shouldn't have to do this rather than should we do this it's like you michael healy ray came out and said oh we should legalize pepper spray again not sure if that's a good idea but the response was basically no we should stop all murders which you see that's the point that to me has become the the central problematic point of all of the discourse well not all of the discourse but so much of the discourse around here there was an article a headline in an article i think it was the sunday business post today so something to say that we we need to talk there's a there's a problem with gender violence in ireland but this is an opportunity maybe to change there is do you not think Gary, in on so much of the discourse there is this ghastly deceiving liberal optimism that somehow some way if and will you to use the language of it men will have a conversation with themselves men will talk to boys we will have this conversation that we can remove this kind of 
awful violence from human society. Now, the problem with that is, while that's a lovely idea, when you when you base or you say we're going to base policy or direction or whatever on the basis of something which is impossible, which will not happen, you're going to produce bad outcomes and bad policies and self de- and deception and delusion. And that cannot be good for anybody in society. When we the notion also it's a bizarre privileging of rationality and language, which I would say, not to be excessively complicated about it, is very typical of a positivist post-Enlightenment privileging of language and rationality and a rejection of just dealing with the unfortunate fact that some people out there, Gary, are mad and some people are bad. And no matter how much you have a conversation with them, they're going to do mad and bad things. I think there is an interesting um, thing there about where people think crime comes from. Yeah. Assault, theft, rape, murder. And a lot of these people, I think, are coming basically from a blank slate perspective. Now, for the listener, a blank slate perspective says that humans are basically a tabula rasa and that we're then imprinted on by our culture. And so anything that exists has to have been caused by the society and the culture in which they live. So humans innately would have, you know, no greed or anger, things like that. And obviously there's a spectrum of how strongly you believe in this sort of thing. But if there is crime, well then there is crime because society promotes crime or has encultured people to act in such a way that there is crime. And that goes for everything from you know, theft to murder. You, you could say, I mean, in the, the high priest of this is Foucault, who said, who and people like, and the followers of Foucault, and they are, they are myriad, who will say basically, that mental illness, say, or crime are merely manifestations of what happens to people who are alienated by society or damaged by society or are responding to the oppression that they are experiencing, the injustice within society. And while, as you say, Gary, human beings are infinitely malleable, that means at a parallel level, society is infinitely malleable. All the human institutions of society are infinitely malleable because they are all simply products of human social action and therefore just hardware not even hardware we are just a a structure on which the hardware and software is imposed by society so there's nothing which is the idea that we have evolutionary deep genetic evolutionary predispositions just so this notion that we are if it's a deeply dangerous one because it's delusional and and it sends us down again and again Ratways and alleyways of changing and changing and changing and again and again and again it doesn't work and also one of the very dangerous things about it is it assumes that you can fiddle around with human institutions in a way that is not dangerous when the actual truth is we know from the last 150 years that many human institutions are far more fragile than they look and once they're broken it's very hard to fix absolutely and it's very very popular particularly amongst the left although not entirely amongst the left no but when you people like Orla O'Connor come out and say you know, it's men their culture that needs to change or when you hear people talking about rape culture particularly in western countries that have very low levels of violence towards women at least on a comparative basis, it should be understood that they are coming knowingly or unknowingly from these kind of positions. Because if everything is due to society and there is still rape or there's still violence against women, then obviously culture needs to change. Because that's the only thing they have because um, everything arises from culture. Now, the opposite to that 
would be um, some variant of, of nativistic or... Um, Biological determinism, I suppose. Which would say that, and again, there is a continuum here. Some people would say that um, you know, man is, is entirely controlled by his evolutionary history and his genetics. And others would say it's it's there is a cultural element. Ultimately, people are just animals. And so crime arises not because uh, society is built in such a way, but because people are animals. And there is always going to be an element of crime. You can't stop these things. And the job of society should be to take the urges that could become negative and channel them into more productive enterprises. No, I just want I want to throw in here, Gary, before we go too far, is that, well, like any decent conservative, I'm sort of in the middle. I think there's a mixture of social function. You know, it's a mixture of nature and nurture here. That's the that's with human beings. That's with society. That's with everything. It's never just one thing. It's not univocal. Univocal. It's a lot of things. And I will I will say I'll concede that when it comes to something like sexual crime and sex, or sexual violence or violence of any kind, and say we're in this particularly violence against women, that there is a social element and we can see a change in societal attitudes impact and have So, for example, for a very, very, for human history, the notion of rape within marriage did not exist. If you if you married a woman, you couldn't rape her. That was the law. That and that reflected in, and I absolutely believe that that will have reflected in the way that men uh, interact were with, with some men will have been with their wives. I'm sure that there were some men who, because this the notion of rape within marriage didn't exist. Once you're married to a woman, then you had the you had sexual rights over her. That that will have meant that some men raped their wives within marriage. That and the same men had it not been the case, had they been married in a society where as it is now rape within marriage is recognized they would not have raped their wives i think that we can see that the way that men don't feel permitted i mean you know the cliche of people going to certain countries abroad where people would would pinch women's bottoms or or touch them or feel them as societies have changed and as this has become frowned upon men have changed their attitudes and may change their behaviors mostly uh, towards women and don't think they have permission to do these things to cat, you know the the builder's cat call. I personally have never heard a builder cat call a woman. You know the cliche builder cat call a woman, but I'm sure it happens and has happened. But I'm I also I'm sure that it happens far less now because society has changed and is perceived to be less permissible, less not acceptable thing to do. So not I'm not saying for a minute that it's not that there isn't an element within society that certain that that behaviors. Uh, the acceptability of behaviours and the perception that certain behaviours are violent or not violent can't be part of this. I'm not denying that at all. I think that's true. But the notion that you can have through a conversation, through a social change, you can eliminate, it seems to me, is just is just dangerous. No, I mean, you, you can look at these rates over time and you can see that they change as, as cultural mores change. So obviously culture can play a large part in it. But I, I think your point is, is that it's not looking, these people aren't talking about lowering it. They're talking about eliminating it. And that is something that has never been done. No. And particularly in a case like this, that this would, or cases of extreme violence, that this is somehow amenable to this kind of discourse. It just seems to me. I don't see how that's... I know a lot of women I've been talking to, shall we say, that fall into the category of ordinary women, Gary, although they're not a bit ordinary, are kind of... I was kind of relieved because there was a discourse of a while where it seemed to be the implication was that everybody, every man was in some sense implicated in this. 
And I, I saw tweets where people say, oh, for God's sake, men, deal with this. Like, How do we, what are you talking about? That all, I don't know if anybody is aware of, there's a feminist writer called Andrea Dworkin who wrote a, what was considered at the time a very important text, seminal text called Intercourse. And Andrea Dworkin's position was that all men were rapists. And that all acts of, uh, all sexual acts between men and women were acts of rape, uh, even if it did, the people involved didn't think so. And they thought they were consensual. They were, in fact, acts of rape. There seemed to be an element of that, of this Dworkin-esque relationship. I saw a headline saying, written by a male journalist saying that all men are somewhere on the spectrum, Gary. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I am. There is a point there that I think is not correct, but it touches on something correct. What I was saying earlier of theoretically anyone that you encounter can hurt you or can try and hurt you sure but it's also true if we take if we combine that with what we were saying there about the dramatic differences in strength between men and women you combine those two together and you can kind of see why someone who is aware of both of those things is not going to be comfortable with them and is going to feel a sense of threat yeah also as an aside i'm told that dworkin was actually very fun in personal conversation <laughs> I don't know if that's true. She was an odd, odd bird. She had two important social uh, human relationships in her life. Her father and her brother, both of whom she adored, which is unusual because a lot of feminists have n- don't have any men in their lives and don't like men generally, uh, the, the radical types. Uh, but she mad about her father and her brother and produced these. I'll tell you what, though. She wrote well. And having, having been a person who, for reasons we don't need to go into, for two or three years, read a hell of a lot of of feminist theory from de Beauvoir, Millis and Friedman and all the others. To read somebody who could write was like a glass of cold water in the desert, even if what she was writing was odd, at at least, and rather attacking, less attacking to maybe to a gay man than a a straight man. But still, if you were... If you had hair in your chest, it was, it was, it was all a bit worrying. Okay, just curiosity here, and because I know that you sometimes cap, you have these things in your head, but you probably don't. I mean, is there any chance that for if uh, we just locked up sexual offenders, predators for longer than we do, that that would be a protective thing? So you have two things of note there. One is that the vast majority of crimes are committed by a relatively small amount of people. It's one of the reasons why I've always thought all of the work saying that three strike rules didn't work was probably nonsense because I can't see how both of those things can be true at once and one is very well backed. I'm not saying it's the best thing that can be done. I mean there could be you know far more uh, workable options but I don't see how it wouldn't work at all which is a claim from a lot of criminologists who tend to be more on the left generally. I think the problem with the three strike rule was maybe it was the three part but the, the re- that there wasn't enough nuance on the nature of the crime that you could do too big and so for example lit- uh, stealing the the, 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 the the loaf of bread which is always the, the great example he stole a loaf of bread technically falls into the realm of felony and there was no distinction between the felony of stealing the loaf of bread and the felony of blowing up a bank. Yeah, but you know, from a crime prevention standpoint, it doesn't really make any difference. Right. I mean, on a practical level, it does because there are limitations in how many people you can effectively imprison. But from a crime prevention standpoint, not really. 
the other point I would make, though, um, in relation to murder particularly, is a lot of murders are sort of spur of the moment things, and they involve people who know each other. You're much more likely to know your your manslaughterer or your homicider than you are not, aren't you? Most most murders take place within a, within a circle, whether it's family or friends or even uh, or friends of family. But you are you're more you probably will know the person who kills you. So, if, on one hand, yes, you might pick you might stop a lot of things, particularly in relation to sexual crimes, because then you're dealing with repeat offenders. But in relation to things like uh, murders and the like, then you would be... I, I'm unsure what impact that would have. I can't remember the numbers, but I remember, and maybe it's not true anymore, I can't imagine that it would have changed that much. But some time ago, reading uh, a report uh, on murders, and the va- I think the very large majority of murderers commit one murder. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, actually, is um, there's a big focus on uh, the killing of women by ex-partners. And just just an interesting little stat there. Nearly all of those killings are within the first year, and most are within the first month. So there are there are knowing that there are particular policies you can push for providing more protection, just generally for women over that period. <coughs> practically speaking, do you think in response to this case is okay? I mean, I think there was an art, there are a number of articles. I think there was one by Arnish Hanlon and others saying that actually the reality is that now women are frightened, women are scared, and at the same time, women are safe. Do you think, what strikes me, that this this reminds me, the, the moment we're going through reminds me a bit of discussions, I don't know if you're aware of, Jonathan Haidt, when he talks about the advent of helicopter parenting in the United States, you know, the fact, the overprotectiveness. He said that it went back to a moment in the late 70s where there were there were one or two very uh, prominent child abductions. And this coincided with the advent of 24-hour news television. And for the first time, they had to produce news constantly. So these adoptions became the core of their of the news story and they blanketed 24-hour news on this which created an incredibly heightened sense of anxiety about the threat of childhood child abduction even though when you looked at the numbers and we all i mean we, we talked about this with covid as well the numbers may be one thing but then the reality of our fear is another thing the numbers showed that childhood abduction was an incredibly rare uh, phenomenon and even and even then we did all this you know the, the, not just it starts in the states and then it comes up stranger danger and all that when violence uh, occurs against children or children are adopted even in those in those rare cases it's all it massively not by strangers again but by somebody that that, that uh, is part of the family circle or the family friend circle it is somebody that the children know but that didn't matter that reality what didn't matter the press and the media created this sense of anxiety within people which persists uh to this day and has change child rearing in the united states and it seems it feels like there's an element i don't know why they would want to do it i mean there's there there, there are women's groups doing it there's other groups that are elevating this sense of danger and threat to women which just it isn't reflected and that's maybe sounds a little bit sort of ridiculously cold or something but the reality is when you look at the numbers these are inc- these are still very very rare happenings and this sense of fear and danger 
seems to be disproportionate. I don't understand why they would... There's no sense of balancing in it at all. So uh, I think you raise a good point, and Eilish's article is, is well worth reading. I mean, if you were to ask me the first thing that should be done in this area, if you're concerned about the relative levels of fear of crime, the very first thing would be to show people what the actual statistics show. Uh, for the very simple reason that women dramatically overestimate the likelihood that they will be the victim of crime. And men also actually overestimate the amount of crime which involves women. And so showing people that is is a good first part to kind of get people on track. It's pretty consistent that women are more anxious about crime and more fearful about crime. Um, Women in general are more anxious about life in general. Interestingly, part of that, they think, is related to um, how they respond to stress. You know, all of those things, Michael, about how you should, you know... um, you should think about your problems and talk about them and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Would it surprise you to learn that research indicates that that's going to make you more anxious about them? Well, I'm aware of a study. <laughs> this sounds ridiculously, but it's true. I am aware of a study done by the University of Tennessee, which observed within groups of teenage girls and young women uh, who dis- who were discussing, uh, or groups that discussed and didn't discuss uh, problems. And they found that those that m- that discussed more and returned more uh, to analyse and reanalyse the, the particular problems had higher levels of, uh, of anxiety. The approach which shows uh, the lowest increase in anxiety is the type of thing that men traditionally focus in, problem-focused um, solution kind of stuff. You're just looking for a way to fix it. Mm-hmm. That That is the best way of handling it. The more you think about these things, the more anxious you're going to be. And so they think that's part of the reason why women are, are so much anxious, so much more anxious about this. Just, I just want to say, isn't that a remark? If, if that is true at a broader level, that's a remarkable thing. For a hundred and whatever years, the, the whole approach to the, to the mental approach to internal issues in any psychotherapeutic form has been based on the premise that talking about things is good for you. Talking about things can be good for you. But that can, that's a very important can there. It's a significant problem with a lot of therapy. And when you look at, Michael, the types of talk therapy that are most effective, like um, cognitive behavioral therapy, very solution focused. Yes, there is talking about your issues and and trying to understand them, but it is also solution focused. And which I think is probably why it's one of the forms of therapies that have the strongest uh, scientific backing to them actually having some sort of efficiency. CBT just seems to work for a lot of stuff. Not everything. It's there's some stuff that, you know, some stuff is is more suited to it than others. But phobias fear of anxieties that kind of panic that kind of stuff even depression there's a lot of stuff it does it it, it maybe not work perfectly but it's certain that it, it it's a help it's a, a significant help one uh, one other thing you can do if you want to increase someone's anxiety is you can talk about things as if there's nothing that person can do about them so in many ways the the current response to this murder and to the crime of this type more generally that it's something that only men can deal with, that it's something we have to constantly talk about. And it's then women can do nothing about it themselves. Yeah, I've noticed in pretty much everyone but Eilish O'Hanlon's piece a total unwillingness to bring up any of the actual statistical evidence behind this. So it seems nearly, it's not designed, it's what's just what's happening. But if you were going to design a, a reaction 
to increase fear and increase anxiety while achieving nothing useful. It will be pretty much what the NGOs have decided upon. But that, isn't this the, uh, the incredible thing? Again, referring to the height, just height, he wrote, uh, he, uh, a, a colleague was talking about the, the whole issue of, say, trigger warnings in, in, in colleges, universities, and safe spaces and all this. And he, he was having a conversation with, um, at university with a, a prominent academic who was an expert in the treatment of post traumatic stress disorder. And they're talking about what you would do and what you shouldn't do. And it struck him. Greg Luganioff, I think, is, is, is the, is the guy. Yes, yeah, Greg Luganioff. And it struck him that all of the things they were proposing and the way they were framing the issue and the way they were talking about it was the exact opposite of what professionals trained in treating P- uh, PTSD would actually say you should do. If any, everything they were doing was designed, almost like it was designed, if anybody did have this and rather than just pretend, rather than just was seeking to be offended or to be stressed, would actually exacerbate the problem of their trauma. It was the it was the exact opposite of what you should do if you wanted to treat somebody who had a trauma, who was suffering from a post traumatic stress. And again, in this case, if it's almost like they're they're saying they're 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 speaking to women in this way, which is going to heighten their anxiety and their fear, but also, but in a completely in a, in a way which there is no way out of, because you're saying to them, well, there's nothing you can do, and. And this isn't just about women. I think this is any human being. If you give a human being a problem and then tell them, oh, by the way, there's nothing you can do about it. That is a way to create a horrible, a horribly stressed human being because you're, you've convinced them that they're, that, that they're in this place, which is a bad place to be. And there's absolutely no, there's nothing they can do. They can only hope that somebody else will come. I mean, it's the old cliche of, of, of HR. That the very worst job you can have is the job where you have lots of responsibility, but no power. The, the refusal to show statistical evidence or to actually put these beliefs into any sort of framework with numbers is the worst possible way to do it. Because then the, the threat is effectively all-encompassing. It could be anything. Yeah, there's no context for it at all. Yeah, so it's just you should be afraid and you can't do anything about it and all of these things. Where you, you can do things about it. Well, you can do things about certain parts. Of it. The problem, actually, in relation to, to violence against women, and particularly homicide against women, is that men are subject to a lot more um, stranger attacks. Like You're a lot more likely as a man to just be randomly assaulted. Yeah. Or murdered than you are as a woman. Uh, or as a woman, you're far more likely to know your assailant if you are a woman. So there are things you can do that will cut down on the likelihood of being attacked by strangers that don't really work with people you know because you've, you know, you've no reason to avoid them for the most part. One thing I did like was the um, the amount of male kind of TV and media presenters coming out and talking about their male privilege and how they could walk through any part of Dublin at night without any sort of fear. Well, that's bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. I heard these people say that. I said, okay, right. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, let's try that out. Let's have a little experiment, shall we? But that, I mean, that was the interesting question. We, for a lot of this, we weren't talking about the actual statistics on murder or assaults or what could be done. We were talking about fear. People were talking about differing levels of fear. And a lot of it didn't actually touch on, well, you know, what is the appropriate level of fear? Well, you see, that I suppose let's, let's for a moment not be Vulcan about this, but be human. It... Well, the first thing is murder, and certainly this kind, this kind of murder is very rare in Ireland, so it's, it still is shocking. 
this was a young woman, a young, strong, fit, athletic woman doing something completely banal, ordinary. She was in her own in in her own environment, in her own place. She was going for a run. There was something shocking about it. There was something peculiarly. I I suspect. I don't know. I'm just speculating here completely. That the fact that we're two or what two years, three years into a pandemic and the anxieties and the issues around that, and somehow, without being too Freudian about it, that we're sitting inside our houses and this woman running outside along a canal suddenly is struck down. I think that there's a anxieties and projections going on that in the response there that is not unconnected to it. But it was it 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 was a just a peculiarly horrid surprising event and people were struggling to respond to it i sus- without i suspect and maybe not many but i suspect that some people saw this as an opportunity they had a particular line had particular shall we say analysis to sell and they thought that this was a a good place that they could piggyback on uh, that sense of shock and that sense of fear to sell that line I mean, it didn't take long for people to find that this tragedy meant that we needed to do the things that they've wanted us to do for years. Yes, isn't it? Oh, it's weird the way that happens, isn't it? Sometimes there was a direct link there, and sometimes it was a bit more of a stretch. One thing I do wonder is, it, all of their talk about um, culture and how men need to, to talk and all of that sort of thing, I wonder how easy it would be to get these people to switch to some sort of virulently anti-immigrant viewpoint. Because historically, that's actually been rather a thing. If you're talking about the culture and how it's about men, and then it turns out that it's someone not from that culture, well, then that has implications for arguments. So, I, um, you know, that that's terribly racist. I'm like, eh, it's, it's pretty much what you're doing there. Like, it's, there's actually a very small dividing line here, and I wouldn't be surprised if people step over it. No, I have seen, I've seen people from, shall we say, predictable people? charting the the nationality at all of the number of, of, of serious sexual offenders against women in the last few years to make their particular point but when you yeah on the other side shall we say that let's let's categorize those people of being of the right and then on the left you have the people basically not say not doing it in nationality but shall we doing it in gender based but actually once you you start down a particular line a particular logic there's very little difference very, oh, you you just have a you. I know what you mean, Gary. So if you have a feeling that if you just push them a little bit, they'd go around the corner and suddenly find themselves standing outside, all they're waving flags and saying, "Enough with these damn foreigners coming over and raping our women." Yeah, like someone might show them a, a comparative homicide rate at some point, and then suddenly it wouldn't be about our own culture; it'd be about keeping out those cultures over there. I know what you mean. I I'm. I'm very sceptical of the capacity of data to change these people. No, but they're already making the argument. They just don't realise they're making it. Oh, I, I know, though. I know that, but... Uh... I think we just, if one of them if one of them turned, I think the entire herd would turn with it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think, I think that would do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of what we're hearing now is just 
pretty much nonsense from people who are going to use this as an excuse to do things they wanted to do anyway, and are then going to come out with statements that are absolutely ridiculous, but which they're going to think they're pretty safe to say because who's going to want to say anything about it? Like, I don't see this being a topic many people want to engage on, particularly, like, the issue of violence against women. So the Women's Council can say what they want, even though they don't really represent any women at all, and frankly don't have many good ideas of how to do so, even if they wanted to. Well, other than, well, getting rid of capitalism is a good start. Ah, oh, probably, yeah. But this this idea that you, you there's nothing women can do to make them feel safer. She doesn't say there's no behavioural change that women can take to make them safer. She says to make them feel safer. Ah. But there are behavioural changes you, you can, there, there are things you can do to both be safer and feel safer. Now, they are slightly separate things, but they're both entirely possible. Also, if you are really interested in taking self-defense classes, you would generally just be better to have some understanding of situational awareness and maybe, you know, the things that that people suggest to reduce the risk of assault and homicide are not, uh, like, there's nothing really out there, Michael. There's stuff you can guess. How about jujitsu? Isn't that, isn't that good? Is that the Brazilian? That's the Brazilian one, is it? When most people are talking about it now, it's BJJ, yeah. Um, if I was going to pick anything, just for general self-defense, but also particularly for confidence, yeah, it would be something like boxing. You want something that's relatively quick and easy to get good at. It takes a very long time to get excellent at boxing, but you can get good at boxing very quickly. That sort of thing builds confidence. It also gets you used to being hit. Now, oddly enough, being confident can often stop things from escalating. Actually, I was going to say, I was going to say earlier, you, when you're 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 dissing self-defense, if def- yes, if self-defense made you more confident, that will protect you. We know from a, a myriad of psych of stories, ranging from the kinds of children that are more likely and less likely to be abused or kidnapped, all the way up, that the physical courage. An attitude in a in a in a in a space in an environment will affect the way people view you, whether as a as a target or as a possible target or a, 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 or not. So if you and confidence will will to a degree, confidence will to a degree protect you against attack. So if if taking a course makes you feel more confident, well then it can be protective. It can. You, you're confident. So yes, you you do have a a good point there that. Confidence is visible, it changes how you will react to things, it lessens the risk of panic, it does a lot of things to make you safer. The point I would make there is this, referring again to the relative differences between the average man and woman in both size and strength, the average man against the average woman is not really going to be a fight that you are likely to win. You might get one good shot in, but even that is questionable. So what you don't want to do is you don't want people to attend a self-defense class, which may be reasonable, may be ridiculous, could just be a one-off kind of thing, think confident that they could fight someone who is larger than them, or um, if they're a woman, a man, because that is likely not going to be the case on on average. There are going to be cases where that's not it, but on average, that will be it. What you do want, though, is them to have a confidence in their general abilities or a certain amount of um, resilience. And that is the sort of thing that you would pick up in something like boxing or the like, or most martial arts. You get used to physical exertion, you get used to confrontation, you get used to being hit. And because you're used to those things, you're not afraid of them and you're not anxious of, of them. And then you can respond more appropriately. Where if you don't have that experience and you get into a confrontation, you can get very worried about 
you know, what am I going to do if they kind of hit me, like, and that sort of thing, where you should be trying to, to focus more on the, the overall of it. So things like boxing can be very good with that. In relation to, to judo and things like that, I wouldn't generally recommend them um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the floor to get good at them is much higher than at something like boxing. You can get very good at boxing quite quickly. As I said, it, it takes a long, long and amount of time and incredible amounts of training to get excellent at boxing. But you can get pretty good pretty quickly. The other thing to remember there is a lot of them require very kind of fine movements and for your opponents to be in particular kind of positions. And when you get into a situation like this, adrenaline is going to start to surge and that is going to limit your fine motor control. Now, that'll be workable with if you've trained heavily and you know exactly what you're doing and you're not terribly anxious. But if you're training someone for something like that, you don't want a situation where, you know, the more anxious they become about it, the more likely it's meant to go wrong. And probably the final reason I I wouldn't recommend them is during my heavily misspent youth, I ended up in a number of bar fights, street fights, those kind of things. So I have a couple of teeth that grow backwards at odd angles because of them. And what I learned in those fights is that you don't ever want to be on the ground. It's just not a winning place to be because there's very rarely just one person. So a lot of those kind of martial arts, um, like BJJ, a lot of their work is on the ground and you'll get comfortable working on the ground. And then you will try that in a street fight and someone is going to kick the back of your skull in. So I just don't recommend ever getting on the ground. Okay, well, whatever about why do you, I, I noticed a, a degree of scepticism about the, or concern, shall we say, perhaps, about the suggestion from Michael Healy Ray that we legalize uh, pepper spray. Any weapon you have can be taken off you and used against you. Yeah, I suppose that's always the problem. I mean, I know from the perspective, say, in the United States with uh, peace officers that there are certain situations where they always uh, just, well, not, I, I Put put their their weapons uh, in a secure place off there, but because say if they're going to a prison or something, or they're going to a, into a confined space, that the, the 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 protective element the protective element that the, the gun offers them is massively reduced in comparison to the risk of the weapon being taken off them. And if uh, if you if there's a, if there's a significant risk that they're just simply going to take it from take it from you, you now and you're now facing an armed assailant. Or an armed opponent rather than an unarmed one, then it's probably best not to give them that option. A lot of the things that you will really want to have in any sort of violent confrontation are, are mental things. And if you have those, you may want pepper spray. You probably won't, considering that <laughs> nearly every time I have seen someone deploy pepper spray, or I've talked to people I know who have deployed pepper spray, be it in the guards or whatever they've ended up pepper spraying themselves. Yeah. Because pepper spray is um, it's just a bit of a nightmare. Have you ever been pepper sprayed? Strangely, no. no. It is not pleasant. It is, is deeply unpleasant. I don't recommend it. No, I can imagine. I mean, I, my experience of being pepper sprayed or tear gassed or hit by a water cannon is very limited indeed. I've never been hit by a water cannon. So yeah, I, I think we've, we have talked... At greater length than was uh, that was originally intended uh, on that subject, I think we'll probably have to get into the minimum unit pricing uh, next time, Michael. On another occasion, when we on have. another occasion. But yes, um, you shouldn't listen to the National Women's Council of Ireland, whether or not you're a man or a woman. That's a radical thing for us to say, because normally we're such staunch supporters of everything they do and advocate. It's just they consistently say stupid things, and if they didn't consistently say stupid things. 
I would be a lot more willing to listen. Like the ICCL came out there again talking about um, vaccine passports and people were jumping all over them. And I publicly said, you know, whatever else I've said about the ICCL, they have been consistent on this issue. Like I'm perfectly happy to speak up people when they do good things. Just the National Women's Council of Ireland has never done a good thing. I would give the proverbial flyings what the National Women's Council believed about anything the the circumference and the, the and the just uh, are the the rotundity of the earth etc what i what upsets me unfortunately is the fact that first well first of all the nature of their funding secondly i suppose the the level of access and seriousness to which the media ascribes them but most of all gary as we remember from not that long ago the speed with which our elected representatives our princes of democracy in the temple of the doll will sign documents published by them, which are not far from Stalin's five-year plan. And it's painfully obvious that people like the National Women's Council gain a degree of, what would you say, acceptance, seriousness, influence, which is just automatic. It's ex officio. And nobody listens to them. They just make proposals and, oh, yeah, we'll sign up to that. I mean, remember the fantastic electoral document that all these TDs signed up to and then desperately when they, when when we pointed out to them what was actually contained in the document, desperately tried to get their names taken off. Yes, in the words of one Fianna Fáil TD when told about the document's content and that he had signed it, oh, fuck. <laughs> Yeah, which is succinct, to be fair. It, it succinct and got straight to the point. Anyway, that is my problem or concern with these people. That they have a level, that the, shall we say, the, the level of interrogation of anything that they say seems to be rather poor. And it's neither by our politicians or policymakers, nor indeed by our press and our media. Like Leo. Leo, darling Leo, came out on the, on, on the, on the television, I think it was the television, maybe the radio, and said that we are living at a time of an epidemic of violence against women. That may be true, Gary. I don't know. But if somebody said that in an interview to me, and I was a journalist, I, I mean, uh, my first reaction would be, really, Taoiseach? Uh, um, is that Garda? data is that department of justice data where does that come from yeah i mean we, we we must stop this because i think we are we are going way over what we had budgeted but in relation to this i think a lot of people particularly politicians have been saying things very clearly on the assumption that there isn't going to be a follow-up of and what exactly are you basing that on as you said we'll draw a line under this and we shall be back uh next sunday i suppose if not before, but we'll say for next for the time being, we'll be back next Sunday. Have a have a lovely Sunday. Have a great week. All the best. <laughs>